morning. Glad to have so many of you visiting today, just a couple of you. For those who don't know, my name is Matt. Welcome to North Star Baptist Church. Happy to have you here with us on this Celebration Sunday. We will have communion, we'll have a potluck, so let's talk about Matthew 24. Seems fitting, that's sarcastic if you're not familiar with this passage. Um, Fair warning, there's a lot of debate about the proper way to interpret some of this text, and we'll talk about that a little bit here, but... um, My goal today is to present the full wisdom of this passage for us for this present age. So before we get in there, if you want to start turning your Bibles, let's open in a word of prayer. Our gracious God above, we're thankful that you sit on the throne even now. Through trial, through tribulation, through turmoil, through temptation, you are our God. Prepare our hearts to hear what you have for us today, Lord God. Prepare the hearts of all here they will be receptive to what you have for them, Lord God. Prepare my heart that I will speak clearly with your spirit filling me, that I might honor your text. In my prayer, amen. Matthew 24, starting in verse 3. As he, set on the, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, And there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold but the one who endures to the end will be saved. See, celebratory, right? Let me set the stage as we get to this passage. A couple weeks ago, I preached on the two great commandments, right? Love the Lord your God with all your soul, all your heart, all your soul and all your mind. Love one another. Love your neighbors yourself. And recall, this was during Christ's last week on earth, right? So this is his last week of earthly ministry. And Jesus preached this great love. He says, love God, love each other. And this was in response, in context, to the Pharisees continually trying to ask him questions and trip him up a bit. So we see that context in Matthew 22. And then we come to Matthew 23, where Jesus warns against hypocrisy. Jesus basically lays into these Pharisees. He says, don't be like these Pharisees. They tie heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders. But they don't lift a finger to move them themselves. And then Jesus just flat out goes off on these Pharisees. He says, woe to you, you hypocrites. You shut the door of heaven in people's faces. Woe to you, you blind guides. Woe to you, full of greed and self-indulgence. So Jesus speaks of love, chastises these Pharisees greatly, and he walks out of the temple. Kind of a mic drop moment, just leaves them shell-shocked, like, whoa. And then tells us here, 
as they walked out, somehow his disciples, who just heard this amazing theology, this discussion of the two greatest commandments, they just heard Jesus call out these Pharisees for their hypocrisy and says here in chapter 24, verse 1, the disciples came up to him to call his attentions to its building. Okay, interesting. Uh, Luke 21 gives us a bit of uh, perspective on this. He says he's talking to the Pharisees, and he looked and he saw the rich giving their offering. And he basically says, this is an example of what I'm talking about. See that man? He's giving out of his wealth. But that widow with her two copper coins, she is giving all she has. I tell you, out of her poverty, she has given all she has to live on. That's what I'm talking about. This is Jesus' culmination, and then he immediately leaves the temple. And as they're walking out, the disciples... You've got to wonder about them sometimes. We've seen many examples of brashness in these disciples. So thankful for Acts chapter 2. So thankful that the Holy Spirit has filled them. They walk out and they said, some of his disciples were remarking about how the temple was adorned with beautiful stones. Now, at times like this, I seriously wish we knew the context here. I would love to think that they're drawing some amazing, beautiful analogy to what they just heard and the stones of the temple. I really hope it wasn't some squirrel moment like Jesus is like, woe to you hypocrites, love one another. And then Peter's like, you guys see that red stone? Doesn't it look like a heart? Like, I don't know. It doesn't tell us, but it says they draw his attention to the buildings. But Jesus uses that small conversation to dive into this text today. So when they say, when you see that temple, the time will come when not one stone will be left on another. Every one of them will be thrown down. He's talking about complete Utter destruction of that temple. And so that's where we jump into this passage today. This passage, theologians call it the Olivet Discourse because they are on the Mount of Olives. They are having a discourse, a discussion. And as I alluded to earlier, there's no small amount of disagreement for what this passage refers to when he talks about the destruction and the war and the famine and the tribulation. What is this end of the age that is talking about? There's a couple of popular theories. I'm going to quickly outline two of them. The first one would be this is the immediate destruction of the temple. You know, this is about AD 30 when Jesus is talking. We know the temple falls. Jerusalem is sacked in AD 70. Maybe he's talking directly to the disciples walking the earth at this time. This is the fall. This will be coming. This tribulation will be coming. And I would say it's probably more the amillennial view that's saying this is what that refers to. Then the other side is the more pre-millennial, pre-tribulation type of interpretation, which is this is for us to be looking, watching, and be ready to see when these things will be coming, a warning to us, made popular by the Left Behind series, um, referring to the lead-up of the second coming of Jesus Christ. And then there's one other underlying subtext I want us to refer to, which is kind of this near-fulfillment and ultimate-fulfillment. So we see in Scripture this near-fulfillment See it in prophecies to Abraham or David, where it's ultimately fulfilled in Jesus, the greater son, right? Or the greater Adam. And so there is this, this is applicable now, but also applicable prophetically for the future. There's a lot of variation on the interpretation of that text, a lot of debate. And we aren't going down those rabbit trails today. Sorry to disappoint you. Today, my goal is to speak to the heart of this text, which is, not these prophetic aspects, mainly because I'm not certain I know the right interpretation. The scholars I admire most are least adamant in this, right? I used R.C. Sproul's commentary for this sermon, and he is a much greater scholar than I. He's a scholar scholar, and here's what he says. 
I have wrestled with this passage for many years, and some of the views I have taken have had to give way to correction and change along the way. So I am not yet at the place where I am certain I can dogmatically declare the proper interpretation of this portion of sacred scripture. Please struggle along with me as we seek to discern the mind of God on these matters. I love this posture. I love this humility. Brothers and sisters, I am far less qualified than R.C. Sproul to give you an adamant disposition of this, this scripture. Struggle along with me as we try to glean what God has for us today for this passage. We know all scripture is given to us for our benefit. The truths of this scripture are as applicable today to us as they were to the disciples back then. And we're going to see that going through this passage. Last warning, this is not the sermon to walk out early on. It starts off heavy, but the good stuff is coming at the second half here. As we look around the world today, it does not take a social scientist or anthropologist to convince you that we live in dark times and they're rapidly getting darker, right? Please note, this is not some woe is me. Oh, Christians have it so tough here. This is not new to Christianity. This is not new to mankind. There is no new thing under the sun. Christians have been persecuted for 2,000 years, struggled through the dark ages, struggled through corrupt popes and kings, martyrs. Even today, Christians are imprisoned in a lot of places worldwide. Iran, North Korea, okay? Groups of Muslims or Hindus literally attack and kill entire villages of Christians today in places like Burma, Malaysia, India. I'm not trying to make this about us here in the North Idaho area. I'm not trying to make this about us U.S. Christians. This isn't one slightly overfed American preacher saying, wow, things are getting terrible, right, as we drive to church in our nice cars and openly sit here. But these are biblical exhortations for us, for us to take heed of. So we're going to look at this passage in that light. One of my favorite phrases, I say this tongue-in-cheek, life stinks and then you die. Like, life stinks, then you die. I say it often, so maybe it's not as tongue-in-cheek as I'd like to think. Life often seems like we're just moving from one trial to another to another. No long seasons of respite and relief coming our way. I think the Apostle Paul would agree with that sentiment at some regards, at least physically. Imprisoned, freed, beaten, imprisoned, shipwrecked, imprisoned, left by his friends, killed. Right On that physical level, on our version of earthly peace, it's difficult to come by at times. Let's hear what Paul says to us in 2 Timothy 3, starting in verse 10. He says, You, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, Patience, love, endurance, persecutions, and sufferings. What kinds of things happened to me at Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra? The persecutions I endured, let the, yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. Verse 12, in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Okay, So we know that those of us who are followers of Christ are promised persecution. Full stop. End of sentence. So... Let's look at today's passage in that light, starting in verse 3. Disciples get Jesus privately on the Mount of Olives. And they come to him and they say, hey, kind of this three-part question. When will this happen? What will be the sign of your coming? And what's the sign of the end of the age here? These are reasonable questions. Now that you mention it, Jesus, this destruction, when will this take place? How are we going to know that you're coming back for good? They've been with Jesus for about three years at this point. They'd heard many concepts along these lines. Here's one example. 
Jesus tells him after he talked about the rich young ruler, which we talked about, I think, a month and a half ago. Rich young ruler walks away, and Jesus is talking, and he says, Truly I tell you, tells us to his twelve, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. I think those disciples were like, all right, yeah, that sounds pretty good. I can get behind that. So they'd heard things like this. And here they just directly asked Jesus, you're talking again about the future. When will these things take place? I'm going to skip ahead to something we're not really going to discuss, which is he clarifies the answer specifically towards the end of this chapter. He says, no one knows the day or the hour, not even the angels or the son himself. He says, therefore, watch and be ready. So Jesus does not give a definitive date on it, neither will I. But when they ask him, when is this going to take place? What will this sign? Let's see how Jesus answers. Verse 4. Watch out that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name and claiming I am the Messiah and will deceive many. So his first response to what is your sign of the coming of this age, of your coming, is there will be many trying to deceive you. Don't be fooled. Watch out. Be wary of those who claim my name. The first warning we have in this text is to test everything we hear against the word of God. It is so easy to be misled by people who say things to us to tickle our ears, say things that already agree with what we think sounds best. This is how we have so many denominations or various versions of Christianity out there, good and bad, right? I had a conversation with a guy this week. And he was telling me why he left one church. Oh, I thought you were there. No, I went to this other church. And I asked him, oh, why? And he gives me his reason, which was truthfully very, very minor, very trivial. And it was something, uh, a disagreement he had with his pastor. And I, I was just questioning a little bit, like, well, scripturally, that sounds okay. And, you know, why, why did that not jive with you? And he basically just said it super clearly. Like, yeah, well, I didn't like it, so I found a church and a pastor who agrees with me. That's an interesting concept. This man's vision of church and church hopping was to find that church that will agree exactly with what he already agrees, not challenge him, not aligning himself with Scripture. Trust me, I understand this sentiment. I know we are not to put our blind trust and faith in any man, any pastor, anyone who's infallible or always thinks they're right. But we're not to blindly trust ourselves either. We are not the best arbiter of truth. We don't have the best seat in the house to make those decisions. Many are deceived by those who claim the name of Christ. Paul tells us again in 2 Timothy here, chapter 4, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearance and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Verse 4, right? See that you are not led astray. Paul is saying, preach the word of God. He's telling this to Timothy. Know your Bible to all of us. Know the scriptures. Be ready at any time to test that what you hear is sound doctrine, is from the word of God. Why? Because a time is coming. People will not endure sound teaching. They will have itching ears. They will go to teachers that suit their own passions. They will wander off into myths. 
By the grace of God, I've been a Christian since I was five years old. I've been to dozens and dozens of churches as a member, as a visitor. If we're on vacation, we pop into church and visit that church. We have visitors with us today, right? And one thing I've seen is there are a myriad of ways to do churches, right? There are, you know, pastors, you know, there are churches that have fog machines and light shows. There's an amazing guitar-playing worship leader who can just strum and say the right words without missing a tone, Right? There are preachers who preach in flip-flops and shorts, mostly in California. There are preachers who wear a shirt and a tie and a scowl, right? That's not what we're talking about. We're not judging personal preference. We're not judging style. We're not judging musical ability or traditions. We're judging, are they preaching the word of God? Doubt how good of a public speaker they are. Are they faithful to the word of God? Do they open the Bible and preach what God says? Or do they just try and pick a verse or a theme and tell a story that tickles your ears? I want us to notice here in Matthew and in the Second Timothy passages we looked at, this is on you. This is on us. It's on you. We are to know the Scripture. The Bible's clear how God will deal with false teachers, those who lead his sheep astray. But we're commanded to know the Scriptures for ourselves that we can test what is right. I didn't need that. That we don't sit under a teaching that just suits our passions, but we're challenged by the truth, even when that truth is hard. It's kind of like conspiracy theories. Don't get me started on those conspiracy theories, right? I don't have any more. They've all come true. We don't know what to believe anymore, right? Everything we've been told pretty much has been a lie. Like, I don't know. Maybe we didn't land on the moon. I'm willing to accept anything at this point because I have no way of knowing. I have no way of knowing what's true or what's not true out there. But I have the word of God. I have the Holy Spirit. And if you come talking to me about Scripture... I can test that. We don't need lab coats. We don't need theology degrees. We need time in the word. And we need each other, right? We need each other. The Bible tells us two are stronger than one. A threefold cord is not quickly better. And in these dark days, now more than ever, do not be led astray. There are thousands of churches and preachers and YouTubers who will twist the Bible to meet whatever gospel they are trying to sell. Social justice, the prosperity gospel, name it and claim it. Maybe they just want to build their own followers and their own fame. Test what you hear so that you are not led astray, as Paul writes to the Galatians. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached you, let him be accursed. So step one, know your Bible. Do not be led astray. Step two is move into verse six. Do not be alarmed. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. This world we live in is rough, but it is just the beginning. At the time this was given to the disciples, news traveled very slowly. Wars and rumors of wars right now, think about it. It's pretty instant. Think about the Ukraine war. We heard those rumors instantly. Heck, we started those rumors. Earthquake hits Turkey. We're watching it happen live, right? We can worry ourselves sick watching the news daily. Another war. Global warming. Eat the bugs. There's a lot of destabilizing calamity ahead. It's easy to get caught up 
in this height. It's easy to get caught up in the drama. I tell you, a year ago, I was mapping out air bases to see if we were worried about a nuclear strike anywhere near us, right? Apparently, there's a place in Montana. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place. And the end is not yet. This is just the beginning of the birth pains. That's not super comforting. Hey, it's bad, but don't worry, it gets worse. We'll have war, we'll have earthquakes, we'll have famines, and then we get to verse 9. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. That sounds comforting. Remember, I warned you, this is a heavy passage, but it does have a light at the end of this tunnel. You will be put to death. You will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Again, the near fulfillment, a very simple, clear interpretation to these disciples. Hey, you, you 12, you will be hated. You will be delivered to tribulation and you will be put to death. Check, check, and check. Fulfilled. But also, Christians, universally, if you take on the name of Christ, you're not signing up for popularity. This has forever been true. You're not signing up for a life of comfort and ease. You're not promised success and riches. You're promised persecution. You're signing up to be hated because the world hates Jesus. Darkness hates light. John 15, 18. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Why is this true? Why does the world hate so much? This gospel message. Think about the message of the cross. This is the message. You are a sinner. You are in need of a savior, but the very son of God loves you so much. He came down to die on this cross to make payment for your sins, to forgive everything you've done wrong, that you may know him, that you may have a hope and a future life in eternity with him. That's the message that we preach. Why is this message so hated? Paul gives us a clue in, the, in 1 Corinthians. He says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. He says, But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. Those who are in love with their sin, those who refuse to hear the loving, saving message of the cross, this message is foolishness. It goes in one ear and out the other. And they might make fun of us for believing in our magical sky fairy while simultaneously believing in all sorts of things about aliens, witchcraft, the tedious theory of evolution. I had an atheist friend one time. He was a good friend. He was a smart man. Seemed genuinely interested in what I believed. And we would talk for hours and hours. And he would question all my beliefs, trying to pick it apart. This man valued intelligence. He's like, Matt, you're smart. How could you believe this stuff? And we would talk about everything from dinosaurs to the Yucatan crater to the flood to the Grand Canyon. He just wanted to use science and all these things to disprove what I believe. And finally, I just asked him, well, what do you believe? Perfectly straight face. Oh, I believe in karma. Karma? Yeah. yeah. I just try to do enough good, and I hope I put it out there in the universe, and the universe gives it back to me. And my mind was blown. And I couldn't believe that that's what it was. I'm like, well... Is there like a cosmic spreadsheet? Like, who's tracking this karma? Who knows? What if you kill an intruder? Are you murdering? Are you saving someone? 
If, if there's a bad decision, can you get a replay? Like, there's made no sense for this theory of karma. But he would rather believe that than in a God that created this world. We all believe in something. We all believe in what seems right to us. We all find teachers who will tickle our ears. This is true of those who align themselves with teachers and preachers who tickle their ears, who just hear what they want to hear. It is only by the grace of God that we can sit here together, united in Christ, and unashamedly say, I'm a sinner, but I am saved by the grace of God. I know that Jesus died on the cross and paid for my sins. I know that when my time on this earth is done, I will spend eternity in heaven. This is the gospel we hold on to when the world devolves into chaos. Do not be led astray. Verse 10. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. So during this time, all this hatred and persecution, many will fall away. Many will be led astray. They're going to fall away both on their own desires for the cares of this world. Maybe they'll get tired of the endless mocking for standing up for what's right. Maybe they'll be led astray by false teachers. Maybe some self-proclaimed false teachers, sure, Christian teachers. Those who want to dumb down the gospel so much that it's so inoffensive that it's meaningless. Right? Love is love. All means all. Marry whoever you want, right? Choose whatever gender you want. That's okay. You do you. We love you. We accept you. We will not challenge you. So maybe there's that kind of false teacher. But what about the false teachers of this world? The worship of science. The worship of self. Think about your average TikTok influencer. That love of self, this complete self-absorption, this indulgence of self. This narcissism that is taught to this generation There is no right, there is no wrong, there is no truth. There's only your truth. Live your best life. So if you look at this world, if you read the news, if you scroll through TikTok, please don't, you know my thoughts on social media. This is a world that's fallen. This world gone astray. Am I right? Look around you. We see the effects of this sin, this absence in truth, this denial of the one true gospel. We see that. We see those effects in verse 12 right here. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. Lawlessness will be increased. Times will be tough. You will be led astray, and because of that, lawlessness will be increased. I seriously doubt I really need to expand on this too much. The disciples, they did not have Twitter, but we do, right? We can see the effects of this lawlessness in real time. I know it goes in cycles. I know there's no new thing under the sun. My parents' generation would have said the same thing about the hippies, right? The long hair. I'm not trying to take this verse out of context and saying, see, right now, prophecy is being fulfilled. See lawlessness. See wars, right? What I'm trying to say is they're not doing this in secret anymore. Right now, this lawlessness has increased what used to be shameful and hidden. What used to be objectively evil is now paraded around and just called pride, Ephesians 5.11, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things they do in secret. It's not a secret anymore. Shout your abortion, right? 
Lawlessness will increase. The love of many will grow cold. The love spoken here is both the love of the gospel as well as the love for one another. In verse 10, it says, they will betray and hate one another. We've preached at length. I know how I have about love one another. They will know you are my disciples by your love. Right? Even the two great commandments, love God, love one another. It's easy to let our love grow cold. I'm familiar with this personally. If you're familiar with the Enneagram uh, test, anyone Enneagram? uh, I'm a very high seven, a high enthusiast. Everything excites me. Everything interests me. So you're like, let's go spelunking. I'm like, okay, let's try that. I get hot really quickly for something like pickleball, and I'll play three hours a day, five days a week, and then I won't touch a paddle for six months. Early on in my life, I found snowboarding. I grew up surfing, skating, and then I found snowboarding, and that become my true worldly love for this analogy, please. Not my wife, not God. And I, I found snowboarding. I fell in love with snowboarding, and I would go 50, 60 days a year. And I was, I was good. I did contests. I had sponsors. I was really, really into it. It was my identity. It was so much my identity that when my kids were born, like, I love baseball. I grew up a baseball player. I wanted my son to play baseball. That didn't take. Okay. Right? They both became soccer players, I'm ashamed to admit. It's true. And I coached a lot of soccer. I even refereed soccer. Okay. But my kids snowboarded. They didn't have a choice. When they turned two, they got their snowboards, and we went snowboarding. We were a snowboard family. They did not have that ability to opt out of it. That's how much of an identity it was for us. And Sarah and I, Sarah taught me when I was 17. Like, that was our thing. Snowboarding was my love. I thought about it all the time. I'd get out of bed and work on tricks in the middle of the night because I couldn't get that down right. And then, kids, and over snowboarding. But then I work all week long. And on Saturday, I got to drive an hour and a half to the mountain. And we got a birthday party. And I got to mow the lawn. And life gets in the way. And pretty soon, my 50 days went down to five or three or two. And pretty soon, pretty soon I found myself just not even wanting to go. My body gets older. It hurt more to fall. And so I'm riding safer and safer. And for a guy who used to spin and flip, just to ride down the mountain is less appealing. And it happened. This winter was the first time in 32 years I didn't go snowboarding once. I had opportunities. I just chose not to. I'd rather play pickleball. My love for snowboarding, for this analogy, my worldly love for snowboarding has grown cold. You ever know any Christians like that? Any Christians who come to faith and they are sold out and they wear it on their sleeves and they are excited and they tell everyone about Jesus. It's all they can talk about. Maybe that was you at one time. Maybe it comes in seasons of your life. Then what happens? Life happens. Family happens. It's not new anymore. It's not shiny. Disappointment, struggles, turmoil, trials, tribulation. Maybe your church falls apart. Maybe more than once. Maybe you've seen so many hypocrites in this church and you get burned out. Maybe you just don't make any good friends at the church you're going to. Maybe you get a job where you're working Sunday mornings. So whether you've been hurt by the church and pushed away, or you've been enticed by the world and drawn away, either way, you can grow cold. You can end up pretty far from your starting point. Brother and sister, if your love has grown cold, I urge you to come back, to see your need for a Savior, 
Because, as we see here in verse 13, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. In Matthew 13, Jesus gives a parable to the crowd. He talks about a farmer, the parable of the sower. This man is out sowing seeds, apparently just haphazardly chucking them. Some fall on the road, and the birds quickly get them, right? And then some falls on the rocky soil, and it sprouts up quickly, but it doesn't have any root, and so it just withers away. And then the next group of seeds lands in among the weeds and the thorns, and it grows up, and it looks like a nice, healthy plant, but it's choked out. And he tells us it's choked out by the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, and does not bear fruit. And then the last one grows up good and bears fruit. This parable is not about three types of Christians and one type of non-Christian, right? This parable is about one type of Christian. And the rest will not endure to the end. They will be deceived by the cares of this world. They will be deceived by false teachers. They are the ones who will betray and hate one another. But if you endure, if you hold fast to the truth you possessed, that truth that we talked about earlier, that you are a sinner in need of a Savior. You've been saved by grace. That's the promise we have. So this is a warning. Yes, do not let your love go cold. Do not be led astray. But this is also a beautiful assurance to us. Do you want to know that you're saved? Stay faithful. This is not endure so that you are saved. This is not how you earn your salvation. But this is to show you that you are saved. R.C. Sprawl puts it here. Jesus is not saying that endurance would earn salvation, but that endurance would be the marker of true faith. I'm going to end with this. This world is evil. That's one of my favorite phrases. You've heard this dozens of times from me. It does not look like it's getting better anytime soon. You can look at local, national, or even global news. This is playing out daily. Brothers and sisters, we will be hated for the name of Christ. By preaching and teaching the word of God, by holding fast to biblical truths, we will be called names, bigot. We will be hated. A young man in Kellogg this week said men are men and women are women. For that, he was not able to graduate or walk with this class. He was not, and they revoked his firefighting job away from him. I don't know that he's a believer. I don't know that he's being persecuted for his faith. But I do know I would say those exact words because I know who the giver of life is the maker of Adam and Eve. And I know that we live in a world where standing faithfully for the word of God may cost you friends. It may cost you your job. It may even cost you your life someday, heaven forbid. Do not let your love grow cold. Do not forsake the fellowship of one another. Do not let the comforts of this world lull you into complacency, please, brother and sister. Hold fast to the truth of the gospel. Hold fast to one another. Lock arms. Keep each other from falling for the cares of this world. Keep each other from walking down that broad path to destruction. That we may endure. That we may enter into eternity and have our Father say, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. This is our hope. Let's pray. Our great Father, we pray for your mercies. We love you. We thank you for sending your Holy Spirit to give us this power to endure. 
Lord, this world wants to entice us away. The enemy wants to steal us from your hand, Lord God. Guard our hearts. Keep us from wickedness, from anger, from bitterness. Keep us grounded in the word, Lord God. Keep us in fellowship with one another that we may know what is true and good and faithful. In your name we pray. Amen.